Since I was a child, I've been in love with stories. No matter how they're presented. Alexander the Great, Joan of Arc, The Grass Crown, The Narnia Chronicles, and Lord of Rings. These books that would just sweep you on these epic journeys. Big Broadway musicals and dramas. And then the filmmakers. Those films that you walk out after two hours and you feel like you've lived a lifetime. Made you cry and laugh and just want to stand up and applaud. These are the artists that that open our minds. And if they use their craft to better humanity, they change how we think, feel, and do. They can erase biases. They can make us feel like we belong. So it's with immense excitement that I welcome my guest today. An Oscar-nominated filmmaker who has inspired me and countless others with her exceptional ability to tell stories that leave such a profound mark. Her name is Deepa Mehta, and her name is synonymous with visionary storytelling. Did we do anything wrong? What we saw in the bedroom is a sin in the eyes of God and man. <laughs> You have to find a way not to let these boring people rob you of your precociousness. What you've got to do is this. Don't mess with the grand diva. Don't mess with the grand diva! Yes! Her filmmaking journey has taken her to Hollywood, working with people like George Lucas. But more importantly, it's taken her to a place where she tells stories that matter. The challenge convention, the break barriers, the spark conversations. Don't mess with the grand diva. Deepest films have illuminated the human experience with such a rare authenticity that they too linger long after the credits roll. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Deepa Mehta, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Uh, hi, Tony. It's a, it's a real honor to be talking with you, and now I'm feeling so self-conscious that I'm going to really blow it. <laughs> so if I do... Interrupt me and say, Deepa, don't make a fool of yourself. Okay, I will, Deepa. So there's an American filmmaker, Barbara Coppel, known for her impactful documentaries. Dressed very similar to your social and political issues, was asked, why did she get into film? And she said her interest in storytelling began with her childhood love for theater. She would write and perform plays for her family. She'd develop a passion for narrative and performance. And I want to know where yours developed. How and when did you decide that your life was going to be opening other people's eyes to a world that you see? I think, I mean, I fell in love with film when I was about six years old. Uh, and that's because of my father. Uh, he uh, he was a film distributor in India and uh, owned a couple of movie halls. And after school or after kindergarten, I remember really when I was about five years old or something, we'd go and pick him up and then we'd end up by watching movies while we waited for him. And uh, I was sort of intrigued by the first uh, Hindi film that I saw, Hindi, it wasn't called Bollywood then, called Nagin, where Tony, it was fascinating because I found myself crying and I asked my dad, I said, I can't smell anything, I can't touch anything, but why am I feeling the way I am? I'll never forget what my dad did was he actually took me down the aisle, I touched the screen cloth, then we went up to the projectionist room and he showed me what a 35 millimeter print looked like. So it was a bit like cinema parody, so falling in love with cinema. And the magic that something you couldn't touch, you couldn't smell, you couldn't, which wasn't visceral, was had the ability to move one. 
emotionally was something that was, I thought was magical. And how did that move you emotionally? I mean, your young kid, was it just, oh, that was just a neat experience. I'm going to go back and just live my life. Or did you find yourself a little different that when you looked around, you, you imagined maybe that sometimes those stories could be films or life around you was happening in scenes? No, I, I, I wish it was something as nice and dramatic as that. But I was a kid, so I'd, you'd move the movie, you'd leave the movie hall and just carry on with life. But it happened with great frequency. And I and I, I guess what I did was I fell in love with this ability of whatever, quote unquote, it was that had um, had the ability to move me emotionally. And I didn't really understand what it was. But it was this magical thing. It's like being exposed to music. And saying, oh, my God, this is lovely to hear or a concert or a piano player or your your mind. And but that doesn't make you want to become a violinist. I didn't feel I wanted to become a filmmaker. In fact, as I grew older, I that was uh, something that I really had no interest in at all. And maybe it had something to do with the fact that uh, children really very rarely go into or embrace what their parents do. So if my father was a doctor, I think I would have said, I don't want to be a doctor. And so it didn't even strike me, you know, until much later. I know that your dad not only got you to touch screens, he told you stories that he felt would matter, the stories that were rich in value. And one series of stories that you talked about in an interview was when Pakistan and India were partitioned. What did you learn about that time when people were, were either getting killed or on a move just to chase to be with people that also celebrated their religion? It was a twofold thing that happened, Tony, because uh, the partition of India came after, you know, Gandhi fought and the and Indians fought for independence from the colonial powers. That bit of uh, information and what went down, I heard from my mother because her her side of the family was from Delhi. From her, I learned about something that I'd love to share with you because it's so beautiful because my uncle had a huge bonfire going where they were starting to dump everything that was quote-unquote English into the fire. This was a sign of protest that we, we could be independent and we did not need the British. And my mother, you know, threw her saris into the bonfire, but she clung on to a book. And she told my uncle, please don't burn my Dickens. Great expectations. She hung on to that. And I think that vision of my mother saying, this is different. Art is different. Writing is different. So I got that from her. And from my father, who was in Lahore, which became Pakistan, I heard stories about how difficult it was for Hindus to leave Lahore to come to Amritsar or to India. And how he had to leave so many of his dear friends behind and how difficult the partition was. What I got from both of the stories in different ways was, and which I think I'm still struggling with now, how important perhaps it is, it was for me and for them, the duality of nature, how important it is to belong. And what does that mean, fitting in? Or does it mean you belong to a place or a state or you're accepted by somebody. It's, it's so funny that you say that because, I mean, you're two cultures, Indian and Canadian. Most of your work profiles people that struggle to belong. Absolutely, because that's my obsession. I mean, I want to find out how, how does one belong? Can one belong? And what what the difference between fitting in and belonging? What is that? I mean, I think that 
I don't want to just fit in. I want to belong. But in order to belong, does it mean I have to sacrifice some things that are inherent in my nature to be accepted? And I think at my late age, I've sort of realized that. And I actually have felt that for some time that uh, I'm not going to sacrifice flaws, whatever, or my accent, or my, the way I talk, or whatever I, I'm obsessed about in order to belong. Talk to me about, because you also, it's interesting, studied philosophy, and this is very philosophical. Yes. So I'm, I'm, I'm starting to now understand you, because I was so fascinated by, and we're going to get to some of these incredible films that you've part, but this roaring of different cultures and philosophy that seem to come out and pour out of your lens. Uh, yes. I mean, uh, I, I, it's interesting that uh, when I was in school, we have to make, a, uh, I was in a boarding school in, in Northern India. When you're in sort of grade nine, you have to make a choice between do you want to learn, study sciences or the arts? And I really wanted to study the arts. I, wanted, I was fascinated by history, English, geography. My father insisted, as did my mother, that they felt they were being very progressive, that uh, the world was belonged to women and science. So that is something I should focus on. So much to my uh, dismay, uh, my headmistress, Miss Linnells, told me that, uh, you know, I, she's sorry, but I had to learn the sciences. So I did, and I did really badly in school because I was so bored. And uh, so when I came to came to university, then uh, I said, now I'm going to do what I want to do. But your mother's holding on to Dickens and holding on to literature, defending that, saying, this is this is what moves my heart. <laughs> it's. Uh... I told her once, I mean, uh, and I said, mom, how could you? And she said, I'm so sorry. That's what she said. She said, I'm so sorry. That's what's great about my mom. You know, she just gets it. And not only did she hold on to her Dickens, I mean, she graduated in Hindi classical music. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. It's all about emotion. I'm no longer apologetic about anything that might be emotional. My guest today is Deepa Mehta, Oscar-nominated filmmaker. Her work transcends borders, cultures, and conventions. When did it come to you that your calling was to take everything that had been in this young person, all this studying and lessons in life, and decide that you're going to create film that would move people? I fell into it. I was uh, I was going to do my master's in, in another aspect of philosophy. Uh, and a friend of mine in Delhi, this is even before I met Paul, they had a small uh, film house where they made uh, documentaries. And they said they really needed somebody. Would I come in while I waited to see if I got in into my master's uh, thesis. And uh, so I said, sure, I'll help you. I mean, I was doing nothing. So uh, what my job was to answer phones and to be a receptionist. And uh, and after two days, they, you know, he was very sweet. Anil called me and he said, Deepa, I have to tell you, you are fired. So I said, what do you mean I'm fired? I'm doing you a favor by doing all of this. And he said, no, you have the worst telephone manners in the world. You know, everybody's complaining about you. You're very impatient. Why don't you learn something about making films? So I said, sure, what? That sounds interesting. So I learned sound editing. I learned how to edit film. I learned camera work, all in this small place called the Cinema Workshop in New Delhi. And uh, Anil Sarvasta, my, who was my boss and my friend, said, listen, okay, now I, we think this is after two weeks. Maybe you should go and try. We've just got this um, assignment from the government of India, making a three-minute film on how wheat grows. 
So why don't you take the camera person and go and make a documentary somewhere outside Delhi? So I said, sure. So we went to this tiny village where there was a farmer. And I said, how the hell am I going to do a film about how wheat grows? I mean, is it going to be slow motion? What I decided to do, and I'll never forget this, Tony, because it was sort of a, that was the revelation or revelatory moment. I decided that I just watched the farmer as he sat on his bed outside smoking a hookah and he just was looking at his fields. It was so beautiful because he was so calm. He had such patience in the smoke of the hookah and his eyes. And then sometimes he'd sleep and sometimes he'd wake up. And before I knew it, I had a three-minute film and I never saw a blade of wheat. Because you're now deciding you're no longer an academic and you're going to now start producing film. You meet this Canadian, his name's Paul Saltzman. And next thing you know, you're in Canada. It started off as an adventure, but you've got a child, you get divorced, you have to stay in the country to be with your daughter. How did film come back into your life as part of all of that, many changes that were happening to you? Paul was a filmmaker. He was a documentary filmmaker. And I think he made a couple of dramatic television things before. So I had nothing to do with any of that. Uh, I think I did one episode or maybe two of a series called Danger Bay that he did. When I came here, I couldn't find a job. I mean, I remember ringing up the Canadian High Commission or the consulate in Toronto and said, please give me a job. I'm going nuts sitting at home. And I couldn't get anything. So so I did this stuff for Paul. But uh, then I decided that, again, I was like really coming back to this really boring stuff. Subject, Tony, again, about belonging. So I read a short story on which, loosely, uh, the first film that I did, Sam and Me, was based. And Sam and Me is about a young immigrant from India who comes to Canada and ends up by being a caregiver for an older Jewish man and their relationship. Relationship between disparates and, again, where do you belong and what do you have to do to belong? So I did that feature film. I mean, we did it for very little money. You know, it was selected for the Cannes Film Festival and then it, you know, won the uh, the honorary award for the camera door. And so it started and then we got divorced. So I continued to do what I felt was intrigued me or what what I was really curious about was the next film that I did was uh, that I wrote and did was Fire. In between I did a few other things. I think I did something for the wonderful Christina Jennings. Then I decided that I really wanted to do my own stuff so I wrote Fire. By the time Sam and me finished pulling myself a divorce. And when you saw that movie for the first time on the screen, how did it feel instead of being the six-year-old looking at someone else's film to know that was that was your work that was moving audiences. That's fascinating that you would ask that, Tony, because in fact, I was late for the screening of Sam and Me at Cannes. I arrived at the last scene, so I had no clue uh, what how it had been received, what was going to happen. The credits were rolling when I arrived in the movie hall. I mean, I remember running from the apartment that we'd rented to... Uh, to the movie hall and up the steps of the ballet. And, and I was shocked when it got, I think, a standing ovation or something. And uh, and in fact, um, I wasn't even there when it was announced that it had won an award. I want to talk about your Elements trilogy because you became world-renowned for that and you didn't tiptoe over any subject. Fire, I think, you depicted an uncomfortable social relationship. It was two housewives that fall in love. 
even today in Canada, let alone certain parts of the world, there's some people that would get their backs up. And that must have been a very courageous film to do because what you're trying to do is to open people's eyes that no matter where you are in the world, people of the same sex can fall in love. What inspired Fire was something actually a little different. You know, I, I grew up in a joint family in in Amritsar, in northern India, uh, with my father's older brother, his wife, my parents, and our three cousins. And uh, my aunt and my mother were so supportive of each other. Even if then the brothers were fighting, I remember my aunt and my mom would somehow find be able to make peace. And they were really good friends, which was unusual in sister-in-laws. And when I grew up, I thought, you know, supposing mom's relationship with uh, my aunt had become a sexual one, would people have accepted that? So it became about, again, about belonging. I mean, how? what do we have to do? How far can we go? What are the limits that society puts in us to actually do, to have self-determination? Do you think anybody ever has self-determination? I think it's really tough. Are you kidding? I mean, I, I don't know anybody who has self-determination. That's that's the tough one. I mean, when does selfishness become self-determination? It's such a fine line. And then in Earth, the stories from your mom and stories from your dad about the partition of India, you depict it, you talk about it. So what were you trying to get across with that film? It's a film that's based on a, on a beautiful book by Babsi Sidwa, which is again, division is seen through the eyes of a young child, that innocence. So th this kid does not come with any baggage of who's who or who belongs to which religion and what's acceptable and what's not. And then you see that horror that we, we as human beings can inflict on each other using religion. The absolute abject devastation that colonialism has, uh, has done to the world. And then I want to talk about water, the fact it was delayed. You were, I'm not sure how much you felt your life was threatened, but certainly what I've read about the making of that film and how it was delayed, it certainly wasn't a film that some people wanted. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, you know, before you make a film in India, you have to get the script into the Ministry of Information and Broadcasting. And then they go through it with a fine tooth comb and they let you know, is it a film in any way that's going to be harmful to the, to the way India is depicted? In all of this, I have to mention my partner and producer, David Hamilton. I mean, because I think without him, it would have been impossible to do either fire, earth, or water. He's a really smart producer. He doesn't he doesn't produce for anybody else, but because I respect him so much, he he I actually listen to him. I don't listen to many people, so that's that's he's very helpful. And so when we did water, we got the permission and we started shooting and before we knew it there were riots going on. We had no clue what had happened. There were people who were protesting, and then it turns out that, that they thought that uh, they had nobody read the script, that the film was anti-Hindu. And our sets were burned. I had life threats. I had to have security. I was had to be flown out of Banaras, where we were shooting with the two lead actors. We had to be shut down. It was horrible. But you kept going. I tried. We tried to, you know, there were some provinces that said, come and shoot it here. Just, I was so angry. I thought that if I made, the film from the place, my emotional state of anger, it would become a very different film. The film wasn't supposed to be about anger. 
it was supposed to be about humanity how, and how important it is that we recognize all of us are vulnerable and how important it is to actually embrace the other. I said, David, I can't do this. And he said, I really, I agree with you. You shouldn't do it. So instead, I came back to Toronto and I did, uh, we did something uh, that was really fun and great. It was called Bollywood Hollywood and it was a full length comedy. And it was, it was such a, it was such a cathartic thing to do. And then five years later, I mean, Bollywood Hollywood did really well. It was a big success. David said one day, he said, are you ready to do water? And I said, how did you know I am? And so we mounted it again, but we said we would not shoot it in India. We'd shoot it in Sri Lanka because we couldn't risk the same thing happening again. And how do you feel the movie turned out five years later versus if you had done it, finished it then? I think the film five years later was so much better. I had learned so much. I mean, I'd grown up. It wasn't about me suddenly. It was, I felt it was about young people. I felt it was about young women. I felt it was about older women. I felt it was about my grandmother, my little niece, my my daughter. It was about all the young and old women I knew who wanted to have a voice. It's Tony Chapman. We return. We talk about Deepa's latest film, I Am Sirat. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. RBC is a big supporter of Canada's art community, and they believe in the power of creative ideas to invoke powerful stories. Working alongside TIFF, RBC is helping to fund and champion films that celebrate women filmmakers, the arts, and small business. Culture matters to RBC. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I think if you're lucky, oh, you know, we can start a dialogue. I mean, I don't think there's an immediate change, but cinema can certainly make you think. My guest today is Deepa Mehta. She's an internationally acclaimed film director, and she's premiering a doc at the Toronto International Film Festival called I Am Sirat. When you look back at your other bodies of work, do you ever wonder how now that you've grown and changed how you do them differently or do you just say that art is done and I'm moving on to the next I haven't done anything that I don't feel passionately about I just don't I mean there was a chance that uh, many opportunities not many well quite a number after after water and the academy you know nomination and being in LA and stuff like that that uh, and I'd met Martin Scorosis and and you know Mr. King wanted me to do, I don't know what the name of the film was, but it was um, Queen Victoria or Young Victoria or something. How do you say no to Hollywood, a big name, a big checkbook, and continue to say what really motivates me is to make my own films? I don't know. It, it was very tempting. I mean, I'm not trying to be flip about it because there was focus features and they had a lovely, you know, project that I actually wanted to do. And, and uh, but at the same time, I was doing a film that I was, I really cared about, which was set in Toronto about an Indian family. And uh, it's called Heaven on Earth and it's about domestic abuse. And that was taking up my whole time. So it isn't that I just said no to LA or no to Focus or no to this one or no to that one. I was just so involved in what it was like for a young girl from a small town in India who comes to Canada, who's never met her husband, who works, her husband works in Brampton, 
as a limo driver. It's about domestic abuse. And what does a woman do when she doesn't know anything about shelters, has no no relative that she can go to? What happens? Do you ever feel that this is just being your calling? I don't know if it's my calling. It's just that there are moments in one's life, I mean, which uh, at least they've been in my life where you say that... Um, I have to do this. If, and I remember when I was doing fire, I, I, I remember saying, if I don't do this, I mean, I was, I've always been sort of very dramatic and stupid. Um, I'd say things like, if I don't do this, I'm going to die. I mean, that's what I feel. If I don't tell the story, not because it's so important or only I can tell the story, but if I don't get an opportunity to tell the story, I would feel terrible. You mentioned Oscar nominated. You certainly have been recognized in so many different ways. Does any award stand out for you? Or is this glass that you put on a shelf and occasionally dust? No, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm touched by the awards and the nominee, nominations or awards or recognition. And I think it's all wonderful, but it's all very temporary. You know, you can't stare at your awards and say, oh, that's great. Now I can put everything away. And it's, but I don't think that They've helped me understand or even come to some conclusion about belonging. That's the quest. Your latest film, I Am Siddha, is having its world premiere in the TIFF's doc program, competing in the London Film Festival. Once again, it talks about belonging, tells the story of Siddha's life and work as a transgender woman in New Delhi. Tell me about the film, because the trailer it was so powerful. What I've read about it, so moving. Once again, you're coming out and showing through the eyes of someone that sees herself as a woman, but part of society refused to accept that. I met Seerat, what was I doing? I was doing um, a pilot for a Netflix series in India, and she uh, she was one of the actors. And I liked her. I mean, she was, there was something so lovely about her. And so we kept in touch for the last four or five years. Whenever I go to Delhi, she'd come over or she'd email me or send me some Instagram, something that she was on. And there was something so sweet and warm and strong about her. And last time I was in Delhi, uh, she came to see me and she says, ma'am, I think that you should make a film about me. See that, don't be nuts. You know, I can't make a film about you. But what I can do is, because it's fascinating the life that you you lead and you have chosen to lead and you live, I think should be shared with many people. But what I can do is that I can maybe facilitate you making a film about yourself. She said, I don't know how to shoot. I said, well, neither do I, but let's let's try. We'll have no camera person. We'll have no sound. We'll have no lighting. It'll just be you you control your narrative, and I'll film you controlling your narrative. So I'm just the audience while you do tell us your life story. And that's what it was. It was on smartphones, and uh, Seerat told her life story. It was, it was a wonderful journey for me. Again, it was like seeing wheat grow. I mean, something magical happened when it wasn't supposed to happen. To me, the moving part of the story is when she has to go home and take care of her mom. And she has to dress up as a boy again. That's exactly what really makes me respect her so much. And and in fact, is the tragedy of her life, which is uh, the fact that her mother will not accept her, even though she knows. Seerat, being a dutiful, quote-unquote, son to a working-class mother in India, goes home 
as a man is lives with her mother as her son, gets up in the morning, you know, makes breakfast for her, has rented a room about a couple of blocks away from her place, which is like eight foot by eight foot, changes into the woman that she is and, you know, wears the clothes and, and goes to work. And she works at the Ministry of Social Defense. It's amazing. And she goes there and everybody knows she's transgender, accepts her as transgender. She has friends who are transgender and gay and straight, and they all know that she's transgender. Then she comes home by subway, goes to her room, takes off being a woman, the clothes that identify her, and puts on the clothes that identify her as a man, and spends the evening and the night at her mother's apartment. I mean, again, in a way, it's about duality and where do you belong? When is self-determination? When does it become selfishness? I mean, that for me is the whole backbone of Seerat's story. Don't you think a film class will one day study this film and say, this was actually a film about you? Uh, well, I think it's a film about everybody. I mean, yes, it is about transgender and their 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 lives are really challenging and so is Seerat's. But there is something about... Um, isn't it about all of us in a way? I mean, I suppose it's just to me, it's, it's so interesting when I look at all the, not the stuff that you've done for hire, which is brilliant. You're a brilliant filmmaker, but the work where you've written or written a book or read a book and put it on the film. It's really, again, I mean, we keep using the word belonging, but it's, you know, the human being trying to be something. Sirat, I just, I felt so much and I hope that this film opens people's eyes. I hope this film you're doing, maybe even somebody going, oh, I got passes. I can't believe I got to see this film about a transgender. And then we'll walk out going, wow, I've changed. It, it's Seerat. I mean, she is magical. I think she opens the doors of perception. It's a life of contradiction. But yet she does it with such grace and actually has fun while doing it and and shows people that hey, I'm a human being. Why am I being judged? Because I'm myself. You know, we we are so judgmental as people, whether it's about our caste or our color or our race or, I mean, anything, or class or privilege. I mean, get a life. It's falling apart because we refuse to go to the middle ground anymore. Everybody has to take a side. It's just tearing us apart. And it's interesting because I blame a lot of it on social media and a lot of it because you can post your life at the speed of life. But what I really enjoyed about, and I've only seen bits of the piece, I can't wait to see it, is the quality of the film that comes out. It's not doctored. You ha you really feel like you're in that eight foot by eight foot box that you call a room, which is terrific. I mean, it it sort of strips away all the Photoshop and veneer and gel lights and everything else that we use and really just gets back to the rawness. And I think that's a terrific part of the, uh, the film as well. There's no makeup. There's no hair. There's no wardrobe. There's nothing. There's just steered. And you just said it. You just nailed it. Thank you for saying that. Is that we are in that room and it is her room. It's so real. What she's been able to achieve is give us hope that somebody who's different from us is actually perhaps more than us. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Deepa Mehta. She's an internationally acclaimed film director. I Am Sirat will have its world premiere at TIFF and is also competing in the London Film Festival. The film tells the story of Sirat's life and work as a transgender woman in New Delhi. 
How important are festivals like TIFF and the London Film Festival to a filmmaker? It's 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 really nice. I think it's uh, for me TIFF has always been one of the most important festivals because I've grown up with TIFF, you know, and uh, they're important for the film. What do we, you know, what do we hope for this film? We hope that uh, somebody will want, we'll get a sales agent, but because right now CBC has been wonderful. They bought the rights to it. And they gave us a certain amount of money. And, you know, Tony, it would be, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if I'm applying for money for something like this, which is that I could actually talk to the people I'm applying to as opposed to writing something. And then some analyst who's anonymous gives me one out of 10 and I don't even know who they are. I mean, they, they, you know, they're welcome not to give it to me. That's fine. They have their own. Uh, taste, but I want to know who they are. You don't want that person's money. You're right. We don't want their money. <laughs> I know you've talked about times in your life where you've taken a pause, which I, I really, studying your life, I haven't seen a lot of pauses, but you know, you shine the light on the truth. What are you going to shine your light on next? I don't know about shining. You know, I remember, you know, one of reading one of your questions and, and Ava, who I admire greatly, who in fact uh, was the distributor for Funny Boy, her company was, um, uh, about truth, and and I think of a film that has influenced me hugely. I mean, many films have, but the one that a film by Kurosawa, made in the nineteen fifties, I think, called Rashomon, which is about the nature of truth, and that what you see basically depends on where you stand. Is there a lie? Is and the lie, I guess, of objective truth. Perhaps truth is subjective and. I seek it. I, I don't want it to be subjective. I wish it was objective, you know. I've so enjoyed this. And I, I always end with my three lessons that I'm going to take away, things that I will continue to think about. And the first one is, Dad, I can't smell it. I can't touch it. Why am I feeling it? The beauty of people like you, the people like Dickens, the people that can put things out there that make people feel, think, and behave differently is truly one of the treasures of being a human being. The storm and negativity that comes at us, sometimes you just need to see that light and look up and feel it. The second one is David Hamilton, who we just touched on a couple of times, but I just watched a documentary on Bernie Topan, Delton John. And I think that when you find collaboration in your life based on trust and mutual respect and knowing that you have each other's back, and knowing when it's, even though it might be financially better to say, just go finish the film saying, you know what, it's right that you stop. Having somebody like that in your life is magical because it truly is one plus one equals 11. And I congratulate you for finding that and for speaking so highly because very often when somebody becomes the center of the spotlight, they forget to realize that they're sharing their stage with others. So I think your humility for doing that is just wonderful. And the third one is, is a sense of belonging, how we've talked about it and how do we ever belong and what do we do to compromise who we are? You know, you said it so well at the end is sometimes being different is being better than the rest. <laughs> for those three insights and for you, the beauty, the laughter in your voice, the wonderful journey that you're on. And I hope for decades more of producing film, Deepa, I'm so honored you joined me on that chatter that matters this was um, a very important talk and uh, i think you are extremely perceptive and you are something that's very rare someone who's very rare you actually listen that's amazing and you know thank you for that 
Joining me now is Lexi Martin. She's the Director of Brand Marketing at RBC. Lexi, uh, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Tony, thanks for having me. Every time I turn, RBC's involved in these big properties. I mean, golf, they've got concert series, obviously the Toronto International Film Festival. But what I love that's tucked underneath it is not about sort of the glitz and splash, but it's really about how do I use these big platforms to help individuals thrive, communities prosper. So I really want to talk about TIFF and some of the things that you're doing to really let these aspiring movie makers and artists and and people that just love culture shine. TIFF is a really important inflection point for us to put a spotlight on the amazing work that really our corporate citizenship team and department is leading with their philanthropic you know, endeavors and the community partners that they service. But it's important that, you know, we believe in showcasing and profiling diverse voices in film and providing a pathway for emerging talent in Canada to make it to the big screen. Our our film trailer that will, you know, run before each and every TIFF film this year really profiles that commitment and the way that, you know, the ideas happen here for the brand, how that translates into the film community and the fact that, you know, one person's idea can really only be brought to life with a community of support and with partners like RBC and all of the amazing work that our, our community partners are doing um, at the local level. And how do you create that bridge? Because when people think of RBC, they're thinking of this, you know, big and wonderful bank. But when you're knocking at an emerging artist's door and saying, hey, we want to help you profile your work, do they even believe that's true? Do they believe that that's a natural bridge? I mean, you have to create a conversation sometimes with individuals that, that make them realize small is big. Yeah, I think it's sort of the summation of a lot of small steps and a lot of small ways um, that we are providing these kind of uh, unique pathways, to, like I said, to the big screen um, or the big stage. I think a couple of examples uh, in terms of our activities for this year, we're excited to bring DJ Diesel, a.k.a. Shaquille O'Neal, to RBC House, which is our hospitality hub during the festival. Um, but opening for DJ Diesel will be an RBCX music emerging artist named Primo. And so they're getting this amazing opportunity to actually open for this world-renowned personality in Shaquille O'Neal in an opportunity that they would have never otherwise been able to take advantage of. We're also um, supporting the Series Fest Pitchathon this year. Um, that'll take place during the festival. Again, another way that we're allowing emerging artists and emerging filmmakers to actually pitch their ideas to industry executives um, and have them maybe you know, supported or taken taken to the big screen. So just a few examples of the ways that we are able to provide a platform, provide an opportunity, provide a runway for emerging talent to, you know, have their ideas potentially supported or come to life. So many things that you're doing. Is there any one thing you're most proud of? I think the way that we bring RBC House to life each year is, is a really unique one. It's a challenging one too. Essentially, we are... Um, you know, providing really elevated and unique experiences to our clients through official film parties that we're hosting, through a partnership with the LA Times, which will be in its second iteration this year. Uh, we're the presenting sponsor of the LA Times studio and we'll be hosting all of their editorial coverage right there at RBC House and kind of telling stories um, in a unique way from their platforms. Uh, we're hosting the Black Academy legacy kickoff party this year, which the Black Academy aims to, again, 
um, spotlight and support uh, specifically black Canadian talent in the entertainment industry. And so the fact that we're going to be housing their party within our space, um, again, demonstrates our commitment and sort of the diverse ways that we're both bringing elevated experiences to our clients and also putting a spotlight on kind of important people from the industry and the, you know, the values that, that we hold true. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.